0: Amen. If you would, grab your Bibles, stand with me and turn to Joshua the 6th chapter. Beginning with verse 15, last week we looked at the, the, the first half of Joshua 6. And was, lo- and was looking how, how God is the one who, who tears down the strongholds in our lives, those obstacles that have been set up in our heart that cause us to uh, uh, oppose him to what he wants to do. But then there's, a, there's another side to strongholds. If, if you have not trusted in Christ to break down those walls, to break down those barriers, and continue to live for yourself, in your own strength, for your own purposes, then God, uh, his patience comes to an end with that. And we see in the text today that God's patience has come to an end for the Canaanites. Joshua, the sixth chapter, beginning with verse 15. This is the word of God right here. How many books are in the Bible? How many are in the old? How many are in the new? This is the word of God. Hear the voice of Christ. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh, seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went into the, up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she had has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay his foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up his gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. I like to put a tag on this text before us this morning. Only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for being marvelous, for being mighty, all by yourself. Father, you don't need us now, and you have never needed us. For you, our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you were satisfied in yourself. Yet, Lord, you have chosen to pour out your love upon the people, your creation. So, Father, upon this day, may we experience your love in new and miraculous and mighty ways. May we see our deep need for you, for your spirit, for the forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. And may we run to you and not from you, Father, today, may you cause one to stop running, to stop chasing the affections, uh, chasing the, the care their cares for this world. And may they set their affections upon you. Father, whatever issues of life may be going on right now. May you give us that extreme confidence in knowing that you're greater. That you are good. So, Father, may you you pour forth your spirit upon us right now, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would receive this word. May we be changed. Father, thank you for the great privilege you've given me to break forth your word. Father, may you hide me, hide me behind your cross. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer, be glorified today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. One question that I pray to always keep before us at all times is that if we really believe what we said we believed about the Bible, what would our lives truly be like? And what would the lives of those who come in contact in this world be like as well? If we really believed everything that the text of Scripture said, how would that impact your day-to-day? What you said, what you did, or where you went? You know, Hebrews, the ninth chapter and 27th verse, tells us, and it is appointed unto man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Matthew, the 16th chapter, uh, in the 24th verse, Jesus is speaking, and, and he says that when he comes back, he will repay everyone for what they have done. So when we think about the text of Scripture and we look at the text of Scripture, we see running through, through Scripture this thread that, that one day we will all have to give it an account for what we have done, what we have said how we have lived, judgment. There's a day coming where where God will judge the living and the dead. This truth reveals itself in in saying that we will have to give an account, and as we stand before judgment, there there will be a distinction between those who are guilty and not guilty. And, and based upon what we have done and whether or not we have trusted in Jesus Christ, our verdict will be given. This is a hard truth. This is a hard truth that many just don't want to hear these days. We're in a culture that any type of negativity or any type of dread that may come upon me is, I, I really don't want to hear that right now. And when we live in a way that we don't want to hear bad news, we begin to put space between us and the text of Scripture. And as soon as we begin taking a, taking a step back from Scripture, we begin to uh, uh, not feel the weight of Scripture like we should. And when we don't feel the weight of Scripture, we begin to forget and when we begin to forget, we begin to take lightly Scripture. When we take lightly Scripture, then we can begin to live how we want. We can begin to function outside of the Word of God and live according to our own desires, becoming our own God. When we live outside the uh uh, the Word of God and, and, and begin to do lives for ourselves, then w- we can begin to trivialize the things of God, and we can live by my uh, by trust, only God can judge me as if my judgment is, is worse than what God could do. Or when someone lovingly tells us that, hey, uh, this area of your life you, you should abstain from or, or you shouldn't go left or you shouldn't go right. When someone uh, that lovingly comes to you and, and give you a critique, the first thing we have to say back is, don't judge me. But all throughout scripture is this thing that God will judge us. We fail to take God at his word, and when we fail to take God at his word, we fail to take God seriously. This is what we see in the text of scripture before us, an entire people who has failed to take God seriously. They have failed to honor him for who he is. They have Fail to honor him for what he has done as the one true and living God and to live according to his standards. They are not taking God seriously to the point where they think they can just shut the gates and keep God out. The Canaanites have entrenched themselves into this stronghold of Jericho, and they they, they don't want to surrender their lives, their devotions to God, but they rather hold on for themselves their notions of what God should be and continue to worship false gods and enjoy themselves. But, beloved, this text shows us that God will judge sin. You should take God seriously because his patience towards those who oppose his purposes will end in judgment. God is patient, but yet scripture t- shows us that hi- there is a time where his patience comes to an end and his judgment is poured out. Israel has, they have come over, across the Jordan, they have taken Jericho. And now they are getting ready to destroy the city. What we see here are the Canaanites, they have entrenched themselves and, and looking back at where God has brought them, God has already said that the Canaanites and every other uh, people in the land who, are, uh, who have been opposing him, his desire to give his people rest, that he will begin to move out of the land. This is beginning right now. God's patience towards the Canaanites has come to an end. And in his, his perfect providence, what God is doing, it's like a twofold uh, uh, prong. He is one, he is wiping out all those who are uh, uh, opposing and keeping his people from receiving rest, these strongholds. But then he's also using Israel as a tool to bring forth judgment upon those who have been disobedient. So Israel begins to take Jericho. They have marched around seven times. They blow the trumpets. The walls come cr- crashing down. They, they, they rush in, and they begin to uh, uh, destroy the entire population. They kill men, women, children, uh, oxen, and, and everything that is living. They, they kill with the sword. They take everything that will not be consumed by fire, all the precious metals. They take that. Into the, uh, God's treasury, then they burn everything else. And in the midst of all this chaos, this confusion, this, this sinful, wicked situation that they are destroying, God is, is rescuing one to himself. He sends the spies to go get Rahab and the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute and her family. They bring them out, save their lives, set them outside the camp. After after this conquest is is finished, then Joshua curses Jericho. Letting them know what they have seen right here. This this is a curse. This is the result of sin. This is the result of wickedness. This is the result of anyone who is opposing God. This ground, this this heat, this mound. And he curses it. Anyone who tries to rebuild Jericho will lose, lose some sons. And then after all of that, God raises up Joshua. He exalts him. And his fame goes across the land because of his obedience. What is going on in this text? this is the text that that atheists point to when they say God is a vindictive uh, overbearing man who 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 I, who they choose not to worship because how can a good God do this this is this is a a, a conquest that the the all-looking world looks and points to say how could God destroy uh, an innocent people all of them But when we look at this text, we see that no one's innocent in this picture. The Canaanites aren't innocent. Israel's not innocent. But what God is doing, it is for his purposes and his glory. A central theme in this text is the complete annihilation, destruction of Jericho. Verse 21, we look. uh, Verse 21, then they devoted... All in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. What what God is conveying to us through the destruction of Jericho is that the judgment of God is seriously real. This is real. This is real life. This is real people. This is an historical event. And when we look back, we see that uh, Israel is facing a real enemy, a real threat to their existence as a people, a real uh, a barrier and boundary to God giving them rest. And God says, to those who are opposing me in this conquest of the land, I want you to devote them to destruction. What does that mean? This word here in the Hebrew, it, it, it means to, to ban. What is ban? The, this devoted thing. And what it means is to devote something to destruction that this thing has been given over to complete destruction as an act of sacrifice to Yahweh. For a city to come under uh, the ban to be devoted to destruction, that is a death sentence to that entire city. When we look at the mercy and the kindness of God and we see that he is redeeming a people who are fallen and broken in sin and he ransoms ransoms them out through the blood of Jesus Christ, but when a city comes under a ban, that there is no ransom. Leviticus tells us that when the city is under the ban devoted to destruction, you cannot ransom that city. There is not another chance, another opportunity. No thing could be ransomed. Everything living was killed. Everything was burned. All the precious metals were given to the Lord. Well, why? Part of this is because of the Canaanites' wickedness. This was a wicked people. And and the things that they done before the sight of God is called they, the text calls it abominable. Turn with me to Deuteronomy the eighteenth chapter. Let's look at this people. Deuteronomy the eighteenth chapter. Let's look at verses nine through fourteen. This will kind of give you an idea of who who, who these Canaanites were. It says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. When you come into this land, there's some things I I don't want you to do. They're so wicked, they're they're, they're so terrible that I want you to keep your hands from them. Do uh, Do not mimic, do not copy these people. Verse 10 There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughters as an offering. The Canaanites will actually take their children and sacrifice them to their false gods in hopes that they may receive blessing, in hopes they may receive a good harvest, in hopes that their pleasures will be satisfied. How many things do we sacrifice? To, this, to false gods, in order that we may be satisfied. He goes on, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, someone who is going before the dead to communicate with the dead, or one who inquires of the dead, For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to uh, dispose, listen. They listen to fortune tellers and to diviners, but as for you. The Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Part of what God is doing here is, the, is, is he is bringing judgment upon a sinful, wicked people who have continued to live in opposition to what he wants to do with their lives. See, th- w- what we need to understand is we have been created for God. Our purposes are to glorify God and to enjoy him, forever and whenever we get out of alignment with what God has created us for and what we are choosing to do there is a clash of kingdoms and God is uh he's looking at upon his creation and saying these are supposed to be my image bearers they are supposed to reflect my glory throughout all of creation and my 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 glory would, would surround the entire earth but when they are living for themselves their glory is being seen, not ours. We need only look at the, uh, the television or the newspaper to see how, man, we are living for our own glory and not the glory of God. We're living that our name will be made much of and not the name of Jesus. We're living, living to satisfy ourselves and not the purposes of God. This is rebellion. This is sin. We are choosing to live contrary to to God's desire for our lives. Not only is God bringing judgment because of the Canaanites' wickedness, but because that wickedness will influence his own people. Deuteronomy lays out time and time again what they are supposed to do with the people in the land. Let's look at a few here. Turn with me to Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter. beginning with verse 1. God says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations, more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and that he would destroy you quickly. But thus, Shall you deal with them? You shall break down the altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their uh, ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Uh, Israel, you are my people. When you are going to this land. Don't allow their sinful practices to influence you. Deuteronomy, the 20th chapter. Beginning with verse 16. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. Again, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their uh, abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. God. Israel, do not be influenced by them. But what's the big deal here? What's the problem? Why why is God so upset with the Canaanites? Their refusal to be image bearers. This is disobedience to the first commandment. You shall not have any other god besides me. They are choosing to live for themselves. To worship false gods, ones that are, have been created for their own pleasure. They have formed and fashioned and shaped a God that meets their needs, that satisfies uh, their deep desires. They are making, they have made a false God and begin to worship again. How often are we setting up false gods in our lives? We say we worship the one true and living God, but we have created, at times, a false God in our minds, and we begin to worship God according to our standards versus what he has declared for us in Scripture. We begin to do things our way. What does that mean for us? When we look at the Canaanites being judged for their wickedness, we must understand that we must worship God alone, not the culture not this creation, that we have been created for the purposes of glorifying God and enjoying him alone forever. Whenever we begin to sit upon the thrones of our own hearts, doing what we want to do, saying what we want to say, going where we want to go, because we want to do it, we have just created a false god and we have begun worshiping it. We are bringing sacrifices of time to this God. We're bringing sacrifices of money to this God. We're bringing the sacrifices of our body to this God and we are lifting up this God and worshiping this false God for our own pleasure. God will not have that. God is showing us in the text that we must only worship him, but also he's showing us that we must keep away from devoted things. God has called us to be a peculiar people, to be different, to be set apart, But when we continue in life to take part in in, in everything that the world has to offer, without setting ourselves apart, we begin to fall into this trap of taking part in these devoted things. God has called us to be light in darkness. He has called us to to show forth the glory of uh, uh, of Jesus Christ within this entire world. But when we uh, become undercover Christians, when all of a sudden we're afraid to to speak up for Jesus, when all of a sudden we begin to to hide the fact that God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, when we begin to uh, uh, enter into conversations that uh, we used to enter into or go to places where we used to that, that were sinful, that all of a sudden we become undercover. We're enjoying these devoted things so much that we won't take a stand for God. When we see the reality of judgment upon entire families, can you imagine being a Canaanite? You think you you got it going on. You, You looking at Israel and saying what they want with my stuff. And they rush in and slaughter everybody. Judgment is real. And when we understand and begin to comprehend just how deep our sin is and how much God hates our sin, one thing it should do for us, beloved, it should mobilize us for missions. Because if we have the truth, if we have the, the, the word that will set the captives free, and we know that judgment is coming, that judgment is real, and judgment will take out entire families, then we should be mobilized to missions. We should should be the, the, the people on the front line saying, there is a way of salvation, there is a way of deliverance, and his name is Jesus Christ. But yet, we're so worried about ourselves that we won't say a mumbling word, we will walk in our job and leave our job, we will walk in the stores, go to a Thanksgiving banquets, go to Christmas dinners, and we won't speak the name of Jesus to anyone, and we're looking at people we claim we love, we will die for, and we won't even tell them about Christ. If we believe what we say we believe about God's word, And we know that God has rescued us from judgment. When we look at our cousins and our uncles and aunts, and we choose not to say a word about the goodness of God and what he's able to do, we are allowing people to fall headlong into hell. We don't have to worry about the results. God just calls us to communicate the message. We just go and tell. We should be mobilized. We should just tell about what God, has. let me just tell you about what God has done for me. Let me just show you why, how God took me from my, my, my brokenness, how he cleaned me up, turned me around, and, le- and he has set me on the right path. Look what God has done for me. Through the blood of Christ. You take God seriously when you begin to understand that judgment is real. Not only do we take God seriously when we understand judgment, but the judgment of God is seriously patient. When we look at this text, we say, well, man, why is God destroying them? If you knew the amount of time God had given the Canaanites to repent, back when God was making his covenant promise to Abraham, at that moment, Genesis fifteen sixteen, he says that uh, now is not the time. Why? Because the Amorites there, that they cup of wrath is not full. This is over four hundred years before. So when we look at the Canaanites, we don't we don't say, well, God he, he's vengeful and 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 he's mean and he's upset with these people. No, we say, man, God is patient. We know that. The, the Canaanites knew about Israel's God. This is Joshua 2. Rahab had spoke the, the complete history of what they had been doing. They knew about the goodness of God. They knew that he was the one true, living, mighty, powerful God, but yet they still chose to close the doors on him. Jericho, Jericho wasn't the first city to experience judgment from God. Think about Noah. God goes to Noah and he says, look, the wickedness of men has become exceeding. It becomes great. I'm, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. What is that? That's judgment. On what? Sin. But watch God and his patience. It takes Noah like 100 years to build the ark. And Peter tells us that Noah was a prophet of righteousness. He was a preacher of righteousness. As, as, as Noah is building the ark, he's saying, hey, judgment is coming. The only way out is to get in the ark. As, as he's building the ark, he's, he's witnessing and testifying to the goodness of his God and his ability to save them. We see Sodom and Gomorrah. God comes and, and you know, we, we, we think about the, uh, the childhood story where Lot is running, and his wife looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. Now, we think about that. It can be kind of cute at times, but do you understand what God is raining down fire and brimstone upon the entire people, destroying them? Why? Because of judgment, because of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like, man, God, that's scandalous. But do you remember, before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he comes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham said, would you do that if 100 people were righteous? He's like, okay, find me hundred people. Well, God, I just planned about the hundred. How about 50? How about 20? How about 10? Just 10, find me 10 righteous people, and I won't destroy them. God is constantly patient with us in our sinfulness. Think about Egypt. They're in captivity for over 400 years. And yet God brings judgment on them because they would not let his people go. Each time we see that judgment is coming, we need to understand that God's patience had already been there. God, had been, he's been loving the people. He's been trying to uh, 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 share who he is, reveal himself to the people. When we look at the text of Scripture, we do see one time where people repent and turn. Look with me and Jonah right quick. Jonah, the third chapter. Because Jonah is running from his call to preach the gospel message to Nineveh. Because he knows that when he preaches this, this gospel of forgiveness and reconciliation, that they're going to turn. They're going to turn. And what we see, Jonah, the third chapter, beginning with verse six, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published uh, through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. God is not looking just to destroy people. He's looking for people to recognize who they are. They are sinners in need of a Savior and to turn from their sinful ways to repent and to turn towards God. This is the God we serve. For the Israelites, this will be a reminder to them of Exodus 34. When God reveals himself to Moses, when he When when Moses asked to see his glory, show me your glory, God. And, and, And God passes before Moses and says, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. What is Israel seeing? They're seeing their God in action. It's God who is merciful, who is forgiving, who is loving, but yet will by no means clear to guilty. See, a lot of times we want to get Scott, we, we want to get off scot free. God has a desire that we would turn and repent. And when we understand the reality of God's judgment, it it should produce in each one of us a sense of patience. It should produce patience. We've been praying for that wayward son, that wayward daughter. We've been praying for that husband, that wife. We've we've been praying for for them down the street. We've been praying over situations. And and it, it seems like we get real impatient if God don't change it the next day. God, don't you hear me praying? Didn't you hear? I, 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 I made a prayer closet and everything. Didn't you hear me? The situation's not changed. But yet God doesn't call, he doesn't give us a timetable. He just calls us to pray. To graciously love those who, who are in sin. We can't become impatient to what God is doing because guess what? God has been patient with us. Has God been patient with you? Have you been acting a fool for a while? Was there there a time in your life, was there a season in your life where God was patient with you? See, I don't know about you, but there's been seasons in my life where where I thought I had it all together and I was going to do life on my own, but God was merciful and patient with me during those seasons. So when I'm understanding God's judgment, it produces a, a, a patience in me, but it also produces humility. Because what God is saying to Israel, he's saying, now I'm going to wipe out these people because of their sin, but, but, but don't think that you're much better. I'm just using you for my purposes. You're just my people. So when I think about God's judgment, I need to, I need to be humble and say, God, but by grace. Only because of your goodness, only because of what you have done, only because you chose me, only because you pursued me, I, I, there was nothing that I was doing that was so that was so spectacular that you said I got to get him on my team. It was the opposite way. So, as Christians, what God what God does when He shows off His judgment, He produces in His people a patience and a humility. Knowing knowing that had it not been for the Lord, there I would have went. It is but God's grace that has changed my heart. It is but God's love that that has made me repent. You take God seriously when you understand that his patience has kept you. But then lastly, we see in this text that the judgment of God seriously saves. It seriously saves. Verse 23, he he, he says, so the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp. As we looked at before in the story of judgment and mercy, we see that God is rescuing a single family out of this wicked nation out of this wicked system. God is 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 rescuing. He's being faithful to his word. When 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 the spies were leaving Rahab, they said, put hang the scarlet cord on your window. Because when we come we will see that and be reminded about the covenant that we have entered in with you and we will not destroy you, but we will rescue you. That scarlet cord would remind us that you have confessed Yahweh as your God. That scarlet cord would remind us that you have renounced your rights to be a Canaanite and you have chosen to, to put on a Jesus and, and to trust in the God of the Israelites. That when we see that scarlet cord, it would be a reminder that it was because of your faithfulness, your, your love for Christ in motion, that we were kept. So God is being faithful to his promise, and he rescues this long family out of this perverted, wicked, and sinful culture. They're rescued and brought outside the camp. Why are they brought outside the camp? For ritual purification purposes before one. uh, Coming out of that wicked, Gentile, pagan culture they, they were unclean. But they bring them and they, 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 they make a place for them outside the camp so that they can be, begin the process of purification. And when they walk through that process of purification, God will bring them into the midst of the camp because the text tells us in the midst of the camp is where God dwelled. And he could not have anything unclean inside the camp. So he says, I'm going to be good to you. I'm going to rescue you and I'm going to bring you outside. I'm going to set you to the side. I'm not going to allow none of this turmoil to touch you. I'm going to set you to the side. We're going to get you together, and I'm going to bring you inside the camp. God is faithful, and his judgment, it, 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 it causes us to run towards him. And he saves Rahab out of this mess. What does that mean for us when we look upon this well, for Israel, it showed them that, yes, we serve a merciful God. Mercy. I'm throwing words out here, uh, acting like we know what it means. Uh, mercy. Mercy. See, we used to grace. We hear about grace, you know, receiving that which we don't deserve. God is gracious and, and he is gracious and he, he gives us a, a, ri- a righteousness that is alien to ourselves. He, he places upon us the blood of Jesus and he joins us with Jesus and by grace he is choosing the people and by grace he has set us free. It's nothing but uh, because of what you've done. It's all by grace. See, but mercy, mercy is the act of withholding from you that which you do deserve. For, for us to see God as merciful, we, at, we actually have to reflect on that I might have some mess in my life. To see God as the merciful creator, sustainer of all things, I actually have to admit that I get stuff wrong, that I got skeletons in my closet, that I ain't always been church boy, church girl, that I got a past. That it, it, I deserve to be separated from God for all eternity, for I have been rebellious towards Him. Just one sin condemns me, separates me. So, in order to say that God is merciful. I'm recognizing that I got some mess. But in spite of my mess, he is being patient and gracious towards me. This also showed Israel that their God was faithful. He's demonstrated to them his faithfulness. See, but for an Israelite, that would have been easy. Because when coming into the land, you almost have this sense of, we God's people. We come, we come, we come to get, we come to get our land. We, we God's people. He, he got our back. Now I was born a Jew. I, I'm in the tribe of Benjamin. You know they, they, they had a little say to say to say themselves. They had a reputation, but for God to go outside of Israel, to be merciful and faithful to a pagan. To a Gentile? To a wicked Canaanite? What kind of God is this? What kind of God goes outside of his people and still brings the people to himself? What kind of God will rescue someone who has been worshiping false gods, sacrificing children? As a matter of fact, the text continually tells us that Rahab was the prostitute. He didn't go get the best of Canaanite culture, he went and got the worst of Canaanite culture, and he's showing us that God is able to reach the worst and bring them in to make them part of his people. God is faithful. So we see that God is merciful to us, that he has withheld from us that which we deserve. Sister Pauletta, she said it earlier, that God has been protecting us from dangers seen and unseen. It's that unseen thing that gets me, because I know what I see. I don't see much, but I but I see some things happen. I'm like, oh, that's what, I'm I'm turning here because that's about to be bad. I I see, oh, I see the traffic on the water, so I'm gonna get off. On, I, I, I see what's in front of me, but when but when God is declaring us that He protects us from danger, seen and unseen. He's, protect, he's protecting us from mess that we started way back when. The consequences of what we've done way back then, God is protecting us from that mess right now. Do, do, you, do you understand that those, those foolish conversations, those foolish fights, those, where you were, you're wrong place, wrong time, God is even protecting you from those things right now, and we don't even see it. God is cutting off conversations. He's making people forget that they're even mad at you. Well, why was I mad at them? I can't even remember. He's causing things to take place to protect you right now. But most of all, we see here that only God can save us. Because the text tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? That means that you have, at, at some point of your life, it matter, doesn't matter who you are, you have willfully chosen to rebel against God. You have willfully chosen to do your own thing. Not to live according to his standards, but your own standards. You, you, are, uh, you, not, you not only sin, but inherent to your nature, your DNA, you are a sinner. That's why you sin. See, we think that sin is just out there in the atmosphere, but we are sinners in need of a savior. We need a new nature. And we can't change our nature because we are only born once. But it's by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that you are born again. Well, why do I need to be born again? Because you need a spiritual nature from on high. You need a a new nature in order to take part in the glorious goodness of God. To be born again. Because we have sinned against a holy a perfect, a righteous God who has all authority. He is a sustainer. He is everything. In the psalm of the day, 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. Everything. Your house don't belong to you. Your car don't belong to you. That Your, your cell phone don't belong. Your phone. Food don't belong to you. Your money, your chip, nothing in creation belongs to us. It says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to him. And when we sin against him, it's cosmic treason. We are rebelling against the one who is actually worthy of all worship. we choose to be our own gods, thus causing a separation between God and man. But Christ, God, in his infinite mercy and grace, sent forth Jesus Christ that we would not have to bear the wrath and the punishment of sin. Romans 3, 23 through 26 tells us this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as one who would satisfy the righteous wrath of God as judgment is getting ready to be poured out upon your life. Jesus steps in and he blocks you like like he's secret service and a bullet is coming. He, He stands in the way of God's wrath, the propitiation, And it's placed upon him instead of you. Why did he do this? This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? Not only does God uh, call us to live this life, not only is he he set apart, is he uh, completely uh, righteous in all of his ways, and, and we are sinners. He says, not only will I be just, but I will send one who will justify you, and that's me. You can't save yourself, but I can. And he sends forth Jesus to save us from our sins. But unlike the Canaanites, we must respond. The strongholds of our hearts have to be crushed. And we have to come before Jesus saying, I can't save myself. I can't go to enough church services. I can't go to enough prayer meetings. I can't do enough nice and good things to save myself, to cover my sin, because my sin is that deep. But only the blood of Jesus can save me. And you cry out to God, Lord, I am a sinner in need of a savior. Save me now by grace through faith because I believe that you have done this. You take God seriously when you understand he's the only one who can save you. See, but the thing is, time ran out for Canaan, the Canaanites. Judgment came. But God is calling us today and he says in a favorable time, I've listened to you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You know, we often think that we just got plenty of time to get right with God. But let me tell you, anytime we sin, we are in danger of setting ourselves up where we can never come back. When we willingly disobey God, we are taking his grace for granted as if God owes us something. And when we are living for ourselves, doing our own thing, uh, we think that we can just come back to God when we're ready and when we want to. But all we have to do is look at Romans 1 to understand that there's a time in your life where you've been in opposition to God. It doesn't say how long, but you have willfully set yourself up in opposition to God, and God will give you over to a depraved mind. That's, 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 that's a New Testament way of saying that you have been devoted to destruction. That's a death sentence. There's no, no one will be able to save you or ransom you because you have chosen to live in opposition to the will of God for your life. Don't take God's grace for granted. Like you can cash it in whenever you want it was you, you didn't earn it in the first place. How do you think you can keep it in your pocket? Why well, I, I just go back for grace. Well, I know I'm about to sin, but I ask for forgiveness in the morning. Well, how do you know that forgiveness will be there in the morning? How do you know that tomorrow is, uh, is a day that you can come to Christ? Today is the day of salvation. Right now, this moment, God is calling you. Judgment is coming. God has been patient. His patience ended for the Canaanites, and guess what? One day his patience will end for us. And when we stand before the judgment throne, there's only one answer we can give, but why should you be allowed into my heaven? I, I can't come before God and say, because I went to church. I can't come before God and say, because I was baptized. I can't say uh, uh, before God, because I memorized the books of the Bible and uh, a few Bible verses. I can't say, well, I was a good person. I can't say my good outweigh my bad, because uh, truth be told, all of that is a lie. The only thing that I can say uh, before God is that Jesus Christ died for my sins, and I trust him. I trust him. That's my only hope. He's my only salvation. It's only through repentance and faith in Jesus can we be saved from this pending judgment to come. The judgment of God is seriously real. It touches real lives. Some of you may be going through judgment right now because of disobedience. We may know someone who's going through judgment because of their disobedience. But the judgment of God is seriously patient. It's not like he flipped the script on you last night and changed the rules of the game. He's been patient. He's merciful. But the judgment of God shall help me realize that I am a sinner in need of a Savior and cause me to run to him because the judgment of God seriously saves. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your patience towards us, for your kindness towards us, and for your mercy towards us. Father, truly you are the judge. But Father, tonight, this 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 morning, I ask that someone here who is choosing to live in opposition to you will recognize that judgment is coming and that they must throw their lives upon. The mercy seat and cry out that Jesus be their savior that they will be rescued so father we ask that your spirit will come that you will break up hard hearts may you convict us of sin help us to see how we have fallen short but help us to be encouraged to know that those are in Christ Jesus are secure, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.